This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. My preaching text today will be from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, and if you want to find that text, and I think we have it on the screen up here, verses 22 and 23, very familiar passage of Scripture, and uh, certainly in the midst of uh, this declaration of the prophet Jeremiah, he gives us, even in this dire, unbelievable context of being in captivity here, that there's reason to have hope. And so the message again today will be what we uh, sought to do over these past weeks and, and, and talk about hope in a world of uncertainty. And uh, we get this from the text beginning in verse 22 and 23, which actually as bookends, the word hope is used. But we, we know these two verses, and this is going to be really the springboard of what I believe the Lord would have me preach on this morning. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 Through the Lord's mercy we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. Lord, thank you today for your goodness to us, the hope that we can have in the resurrected Christ. And I just pray that this would be a good day. Uh, Lord, we look around our world, and uh, we, not unlike Jeremiah, see a lot of things wrong, a lot of things broken, a lot of things that need repaired. But, Lord, more than anything else, we need you. And help us to see that you are the hope and that you, indeed, uh, are the difference maker. You're, you're the one who rescues us from darkness. And you, you escort us into the kingdom of your dear Son. Thank you that there's hope everlasting in, in your precious love. And I pray that we would treasure it even more today as we look at this text of Scripture. So be honored as we declare your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to sit down and preach today. If I needed an excuse, I have one. And uh, most of you are aware that I had uh, surgery on Tuesday of this week and was in the hospital a few days and had uh, an emergency appendectomy. And uh, so if I'm not any good today, that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. But uh, I don't think I can mess up this wonderful text of Scripture. And I, I pray that God would minister to your heart uh, through our time together in the Word of God. You know, one of the pursuits that I've had during this uh, time of a- epidemic and um, just the situation, the context we find ourselves dealing with on a daily basis is really to, to, uh, to see what God's Word has to say about the hope that we can have as believers in Jesus Christ. Because I believe when uh, all else fails and our wor- world is falling apart, falling apart and there's spiritual darkness and deceit and, and, and the political chaos and all that, that we have seen and experienced, we need to come together as a community of faith and be reminded once again that our God is able and that we indeed are to be people who have much hope. For he is our refuge and strength and he's ever-present to help in time of need. So as we look at Lamentations today... We'll see the prophet Jeremiah really responding to all he's experienced in this, the devastation that has taken place in Jerusalem. The city and its inhabitants had been taken captive, as you know. The world leader of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. He had come, destroyed the city. He had burned Solomon's temple. 
The nation was in shackles, and many were led back to captivity in Babylon. And so the prophet Jeremiah now is lamenting. He's crying loudly, in other words, because the streets are empty, the businesses are abandoned, the people are in captivity, and he weeps and mourns over the calamity. He's known as the weeping prophet of Anatoth, rightfully so. So beginning in chapter 2, he talks about how Solomon's temple had been uh, destroyed. He talks about how the Jewish feast had ended and uh, then tells of a an incredible, horrible thing. He said, things are so bad that there's cannibalism occurring, that mothers are eating their own children. And so I suppose he had every right to be weeping for this wholesale devastation that had taken place to the beloved nation of Israel. And so he writes, it's of the Lord's mercies that we're all not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning, and our God is a faithful God. So I want you to see three things from this text of Scripture. One, notice with me the misery of God's prophet. The, the name of the book, Lamentations, uh, the, the word literally means loud cries. And so it's the only biblical book that is five chapters of lamenting, distressful dirge really written by the prophet Jeremiah. So what was he lamenting over? Well, as we said, it was because the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, had fallen. Nebuchadnezzar had really come through the holy city, much like Sherman did through Atlanta during uh, the, the Civil War. And so his anguish was not just over the destruction of what he could see visually, but the reason that God had allowed this, and, and certainly because the iniquities and the, the sins of Israel. You know, the word Jerusalem, is, uh, it means the city of peace. Shalom is peace in Hebrew. This is Jerusalem. It's the city of peace, but Jerusalem was anything but peaceful. It was in ruins. And so he begins this book saying, How deserted lies the city once that was full of people, that once was great among the nations, and now has become a little more than rubble. So let's look first about his distress. We pick it up in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, This is why I weep. And my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. No one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests, my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. What's amazing about reading this uh, book of Lamentations, it's the literary nature of it. It's really a prophetic book. It's masterfully written crafted beautifully by God's prophet. In these five chapters, he, he takes the five uh, uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet as a framework into all that he's communicating here. And so, indeed, you see him, him writing with his great emotion. There's a poetic flow to the entire book, still laden with anguish and emotion. And here in chapter 3, he mentions his burden really as three-dimensional. He says it's physical, Yes, it's emotional, but it's spiritual as well. He says physically in verse 4, it's taken its toll on me. My flesh and skin have aged. My bones have been broken. But emotionally, it's no different. God has surrounded me with bitterness and hardship, made me dwell in darkness like those who are dead. 
And he said, what's true physically and emotionally is true spiritually. Even when I call out for help, he shuts up my prayer in verse 8. And we see this distress had led under B to his despondency. He was despondent. He laments this woeful existence about his own personal plight. He says, I've become the laughingstock of the people. I'm mocked. I've been taunted all day. And even if it could gotten worse, he said in verse 16 that God's broken my teeth with gravel and he's covered me with ashes. And what a word picture, what a snapshot of misery. And that's the state that Jeremiah is experiencing. He's humiliated, he's distressed, he's despondent. Little doubt God's judgment is upon him individually, as he said, but collectively for the nation as well. And we see under the letter C, really what's going on here in the providence of God, because we see this is God's discipline. In verse 28, in 31 and 32, let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is, is his unfailing love. So Jeremiah understands that since Jehovah God is a holy God and it's out of love, he disciplines his people who choose to live in disobedience. His chastening is a reproof to accomplish something greater he desires to do for his glory and their own good. Now, I can tell you this. You study God's word from Genesis to Revelation. You see clearly that God will not let sin go unpunished. What's it say in the book of Numbers? Be sure your sins will find you out. You know, we've often said the first spiritual law is this, that God loves you and he offers a wonderful plan for your life. And while that is a true spiritual law, I would suggest that the first spiritual law is this, that God is angry with sin every day. But his gracious response is to discipline those that he loves. You remember in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews borrows from the book of Proverbs talking about this reality. And he says, my son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly when you're reproved by him for the Lord disciplines as a parent does those he loves and he punishes every sin, uh, every son whom he receives. So Jeremiah knows that this national calamity, this devastation really is God is reacting, responding to a nation that's lost its way and now is suffering these dire consequences for their iniquities. You know, we bring it to our day, our year, 2020. We certainly wonder why doesn't God intervene in our nation, in our political, our economic woes? Could it be that too, in a sense, that we're seeing the chastening hand and a kind of a wholesale discipline to a nation that's lost its moral compass? I mean, little doubt, I think we'd all agree this morning as believers in Christ that, that we have seen an assault on God's morality. You know, it says in Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And certainly we see with God's prophet, there was agony and anguish. And he looked at the city of Jerusalem. It's crushed. It's in ruins. And it's, he, he, he laments about this brokenness and agony, a, a picture of a man brokenhearted for all that surrounds him. 
You know, I think it begs the question on all of us, what is it really that eats at our heart? What really causes personal anguish in our own soul? I mean, when you look at the moral degradation and the wholesale acceptance of unspeakable behavior that's become so commonplace in this postmodern culture in which we found ourselves, can I suggest to you at the origin of the problem is this, that the traditional family as you and I have known it is hard to find. Do you realize half the babies born in America today are born to unwed mothers? Marriage is being not only ignored and considered optional, but now it's redefined. In same-sex marriage, uh, we're not simply called to accept it, but we are, uh, we're, we're biased and, and we're prejudiced if we're not celebrating it. And the courts and the, system, the citizens of this great nation really have all joined in a chorus of disassembling what God has ordained in the sacredness and establishing the family unit. And listen, I think we would all agree, as the family goes, so goes the church. As the family goes, so goes our city. As the family goes, so goes our state, and so goes our nation. But you know what often the problem is within the Christian community? It's not that we don't care. It's that we don't care. There is a growing apathy, and nothing bothers us anymore. And we have passively sat by while there have been those secularists and pluralists and humanists who hijacked this Judeo-Christian culture that we've known and have rewritten now everything that we've treasured. Things like life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that all men are created equal, with certain unalienable rights, the things that we know to be so. May we take a lesson from Jeremiah. May we, in our own heart, shed some tears of remorse and brokenness and start compelling us. And it's evident here that this man of God was broken. And may our brokenness lead to difference. The misery of God's prophet. But let's move to some better news. And that's the mercy of God's proclamation. After this woeful judgment of God and the devastating effects of his wrath, Jeremiah breaks forth in a refrain of hope. In verse 21, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind? For it's the Lord's mercies that are not consumed. They're new every morning, for great is his faithfulness. That Hebrew word mercy is a great Hebrew word. It's kessed. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's translated uh, either love, mercy, loving kindness, forgiveness, faithfulness. It speaks of God's grace. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for the mercy of God. God has a lot of attributes. Certainly, He's a holy God. He's a God of love. I'm grateful He's a God of mercy and grace. We used to sing an old hymn. Years ago, in loving kindness, there's the word, Jesus came, my soul in mercy to reclaim. And from the depth of sin and shame, through grace he lifted me. From sinking sand he lifted me, with tender hand he lifted me. From shades of night to plains of light, oh praise his name, he lifted me. There's a couple of things I see about the mercy of God that Jeremiah mentions here. The first, you know what he talks about? He talks about God's compassion. It's of the Lord's mercy 
that we're not consumed because his compassion fails not. God's compassion will not fail. That Hebrew word for compassion is raham. It has to do with the womb. As a mother would have compassion from one who came from her womb. And so the text declares God's mercy is demonstrated in it. Our God is a compassionate God. And so as bleak and hopeless as things appeared, Jeremiah declares we can take heart because at the core, at the heart of the very being of our God, he's full of compassion and his compassions will be new every morning. You see, when we walked outside our home today, the compassions of God were new, new for us. When we lay our head on our pillow tonight, God's compassions will still be fresh and new for you and I. And while the compassion of God is introduced to us in the Old Testament, we find it personified in the life and in the hearts, hands, and feet of our Savior. I think about that passage in Matthew 9 where Jesus is going about all the villages and cities and synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing the sickness and every disease among the people. And then he sees the multitudes and it says, and he was moved. How was, how was he moved? With compassion for them because they were weary and scattered and he likened them to be sheep without a shepherd. Four different times in Matthew's gospel, he reminds us that Jesus is moved with compassion. It was relative to when he saw the hurting and those who were hungry, those who were in need of healing. In chapter 9, those who were harassed and heavy-hearted. And so since God, and certainly personified incarnate in Jesus Christ, is a compassionate God, He demonstrates compassion. And can I tell you, since He's a demonstrator of compassion, what's expected of you and I? To be compassionate people. We're to be benevolent by caring. That's why it says in Galatians 6.2 that we're to bear one another's burdens because we have compassion towards one another and will fulfill the law of Christ. You know, I was thinking about that and pre preparing for this message. And I thought about all the con uh, compassionate agencies and services across our nation. When you chase, uh, trace the origin of, of many of these, they're, they're all birthed out of Christian love and concern. I'm talking about agencies like World Vision or Samaritan's Purse or Feed the Children or Compassion International, the Sin Relief Network through the North American Mission Board, or the Salvation Army, which is actually 150 years old this year. You know the story, William Booth, a, a circuit-riding uh, Methodist preacher in London, got a heart for those uh, those poor people on the east side of London uh, that was indigent and destitute. And, and so he began this ministry to take them in. And their mantra was, was soup, soap, and salvation. He fed them. He gave them a chance to get cleaned up. But more than that, he told them the message of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there was compassion in his heart and in his life. One of the most endearing traits a church can have is for the people of the community to say, that church cares. That's a compassionate church. May that be the truth that you and I as individuals are known by, but that our church is known by as well. God's compassion. And then he talks about, secondly, God's character. I pick up in verse 22. So it says that God's not only compassionate and merciful, but he he changes not. 
You know what that, 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 that word, that theological word is? It means uh, that, that him not changing. He's immutable, that our God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His faithfulness, his trustworthiness is continually the same. He's long-suffering, patient to usward, not willing that any should perish. Can I tell you the touchstone of our faith is this reality that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises. Why does he do that? It's because of his character. And his character will not allow him to lie. It says in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said and will he not do it? Or has he not spoken and will he not make it good? And so while the faithfulness of God is unilateral, God's word tells us specifically that he's been faithful and we've seen it in the covenants that he's made. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, therefore know this, that the Lord your God, he's God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and mercy for a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's been faithful. Let's think about that in, in the covenants that he's given to us. The Abrahamic covenant, of course he's been faithful. Has he made Abraham and his people a great nation? Amen, he has. We think about the, the, the Noadic covenant, that, that God had put a rainbow in the sky and said, I'm not destroying this world again by rain, and God was faithful in that covenant. What about the Mosaic covenant? Yes, he gave to Moses the law that not only set up the Ten Commandments, but showed that God was a holy God and, and the sinfulness of mankind is revealed in that covenant. The Davidic covenant, David's descendants would always sit on the throne of Israel, which really reveals to us the faithfulness of the new covenant, that the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. And the mission would be to walk the road of suffering, to have his feet and his hands nailed to a cruel Roman cross on a hill called Calvary, to pay the sin debt, to open the way for every race, tribe, and kindred to be a part of a covenant relationship with the true and living God. For he who knew sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So why did God do all of this? Well, it says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us as while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. What was it that drove him? It was his love. 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. And now these three remain. Faith, it's a good thing. Hope, we've been preaching about it. It's a great thing. But the greatest of these is love. Love in your life and love in my life that's given to us in an unconditional way by the God of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him hath not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, I wonder, is that compelling love drawn you to Christ? Have you given your heart to him? Are you living by faith in the God who loved you, who captured our hearts at Calvary, who by his love drew us to himself and he gave himself a ransom that we might have life eternal. Well, I've got to quit. This is good stuff. We see the misery of God's prophet and the mercy of God's proclamation. Now let's conclude with the moment of God's provision. Verse 24, the very next verse, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, since I belong to God and he belongs to me, therefore I hope in him. So here he is, Jeremiah, beset by agony and despondency 
and recalls the faithfulness of God's character and compassion, he promised, he expressed his hope because God was his answer, was, his, was, the, was the source of his personal confidence. He talks about the promise that he gives in verse 25, for the Lord is good to who? To those who wait for him, whose soul seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So Jeremiah declares, if we wait on God, we'll discover his goodness and grace. Do you realize Isaiah, the prophet, had said that years earlier? Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for the Lord. What, what does it mean that we're waiting on the Lord? Can I tell you? It doesn't mean we're sitting doing nothing. But that we're actively trusting in him because we believe in him. We have a steadfast confidence in Him. And we're not standing in our own strength, our own stamina, our good works, but we're relying on Him to be our deliverer. And we trust in the Lord with all of our strength and lean not in our own understanding. We'll acknowledge Him in all of our ways, and He can then direct our paths. So we see this promise here. And then He gives the principle in verses 40 and 41. Let us search out and examine our ways, and then let us turn back to God. He says, look, we're not going to find our way until, we be, until we're honest with ourselves." He says this road back to God first is a pathway of being honest about who you are, what you've been doing, and the error of your ways. Understanding all we like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. Help us, God, to turn our eyes from looking at worthless things that we might be revived in your way. Then after honest acknowledgement of our sin, he says we turn to God. We examine our ways and we turn back to God. You see, we can't just keep going on the same path of sin and a life apart from God and ever be different. It takes a, a, a repentance. It's, it, it takes a willingness to, to acknowledge some things. In the New Testament, we've got a word that's the Greek New Testament, metanoia, which is, is, is translated to repent or repentance. It means this, to have a change of mind, which issues in regret and is demonstrated in a change of conduct. You've got to change your mind about some things. You've got to be remorseful, regretful over past behavior. And then there's got to be a difference in your life as Christ makes a difference in your life. Verse 58 says, Oh, Lord, you've plead, you have pleaded the case for my soul because you've redeemed my life. Listen, I'm telling you, as Jesus hung on the cross, paying our sin debt, you know what he said from the cross? Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wonder, would you say with the psalmist today, Lord, let your tender mercies come to me that I might live. Let your tender mercies flood my life. And when we do that, it's then and only then that we really can have hope. Would you bow your heads with me today?
as Roxy plays as we wind things down today. I've said a lot. A lot of truth has gone forth from this pulpit today. And just in summary, it's really this. You go the way of the world, you're going to pay big consequences. Where there's sin, there is indeed consequences for that behavior. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm telling you, there's only really one resolve in all of life. And that's not simply being the best person you can be, although that's a noble goal. But it's acknowledging the error of your own personal way in a heart that's bent not towards God, but away from God. Acknowledging in your heart and life the best you can do is really like filthy rags before God and His holiness. And then realize in loving kindness, Jesus claim your soul and mercy to reclaim. And from the depths of sin and shame by love, He will lift you up. Today, why don't you breathe a fresh prayer of God help me to stay on the narrow path that leads to life that only a few find. Thank you, even though I was unworthy and even though I've been unlovely, that you've loved me in spite of myself. I acknowledge I need you, Lord. So come. Give me your strength for my weakness. Your help for my inadequacies. God, thank you that you have loved us. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the well-being for, for me to be able to come and preach this wonderful message of truth. We stand on the promise that it will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leeward Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.